So we can start with the big, the big observations, the animal itself. So what happens to a heat stress animal? What's it look like? So we see respiratory rates triple sometimes. They're breathing upwards of 150 times a minute, 130 times a minute. They pant. And that's how they cool. Sorry, the, um, pigs don't have sweat glands, so they re- rely heavily on panting to cool themselves. The other thing that we see pretty commonly is that they lay down. So they're trying to dissipate as much heat into the ground or the concrete as possible uh, just because there's no other way to do it. Uh, Even uh, sprinkler systems can work great, but the downside sometimes is that they add humidity, which can then also increase the perceived temperature. So that's at the whole animal level. And then when you start to look at the insides, there's also changes that are taking place. So I, I tend to view animals as highly adapted uh, to their environment and highly adapted to survive and even thrive with all sorts of different stress conditions. And heat's no different. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Cloud Farms, swine management to the next level. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Meet AccuFast, your trusted partner in raising efficient, healthy, and sustainable pork. We're not just about genetics, we're about tailored solutions that set you on your path to success, no matter how you define it. At AccuFast, we channel our investments into three crucial pillars, our genetic offering, proprietary technology platform, and leading commercial measurement system, ensuring tangible results for our partners. Visit our website at AccuFastSwine.com or reach out to an AccuFast customer success rep to discuss how we can help you create the future you've been working towards. AccuFast. The best way to predict the future is to create it. Welcome to today's latest edition of podcast for Swine It. I'm Jerry Purvis, your host. And today we're very fortunate to have Dr. Joshua Salesby with us. Uh, Dr. Jo- Dr. Salesby is a uh, professor in the animal science department at Iowa State University. Uh, Dr. Salesby, glad to have you today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Very good. Uh, well, I guess we'll uh, we'll kind of get into you. You've uh, a very uh, well published researcher in, in a lot of different areas, but uh, one I think is, is probably uh, very pertinent to today uh, with the weather we've been having uh, is heat stress. And I think uh, you know, I always uh, being here in North Carolina, I always had a little pity party, and I said, "Oh, woe is us. We've had this. You know, we have this heat, humidity in the summers and." And uh, but I, I fail to realize you guys have, you know, you guys had some heat uh, as well, uh, even this this year. So um, it's, it's been a hot summer, I think, all over the U.S. So, you know, we couldn't have a better topic, I think, for producers and uh, uh, to talk and talking about heat stress. You know, I've always uh, I've always understood, you know, in the heat stress, we, we probably had about another week to market the pigs and uh you know we know some of the reproductive issues we have with heat stress with our with our sows and, and boars 
But uh, today I'd like to talk a little bit of something. You've done a lot of research in the grow finish side. So um, I think maybe maybe just start out by just talking about, you know, heat stress and what are the, you know, the consequences when we have heat stress to animals. Yes, yeah, sure. There's, and there's so many different levels at which we can answer that question. So we can start with the big, the big observations, the animal itself. So what happens to a heat stress animal? What's it look like? So we see respiratory rates triple sometimes. They're breathing upwards of 150 times a minute, 130 times a minute. They pant. And that's how they cool. Sorry, the, um, pigs don't have sweat glands, so they re- rely heavily on panting to cool themselves. The other thing that we see pretty commonly is that they lay down. And so they're trying to dissipate as much heat into the ground or the concrete as possible uh, just because there's no other way to do it. Uh, even um, sprinkler systems can work great, but the downside sometimes is that they add humidity, which can then also increase the perceived temperature. So that, that's at the whole animal level. And then when you start to look at the insides, there's also changes that are taking place. So I, I tend to view animals as highly adapted uh, to their environment and highly adapted to survive and even thrive with all sorts of different stress conditions. And heat's no different. So you can imagine then there's multi-systemic changes that take place to support the animal. We see wild changes in endocrine signals. In fact, almost every single endocrine hormone that we've measured has actually changed in some way or another. Sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down, uh, but they're all changing. Um, We see changes in feed intake, like you addressed before, and certainly that slows growth. But if you pair feed animals, what you find is that they actually, heat is doing something else besides uh, having decreased nutrients coming in. There's the possibility, we know there's GI tract injury and GI tract dysfunction. So it's not only decreased food coming in, but certainly there's the potential for decreased nutrient absorption across the entirety of the gut. And then when you actually get at the tissue level, there's differences in the way the tissues actually behave and the tissues are able to utilize nutrients that might be delivered to them via the cardiovascular system. And regarding the cardiovascular system, we know that that changes wildly during heat stress. So blood is routed away from the GI tract and actually shunted to the skin to support cooling which means then there's less of this blood and all the stuff in it going to these organs. So yes, there's less nutrients or the potential for less nutrients to be delivered, but there's also the potential for less oxygen. So certainly we can, we call that an ischemia. So there's less blood coming to it, but it also raises the potential of a genuine hypoxia. So an insufficient amount of oxygen being delivered to tissues. We're still trying to tease out exactly which one of those it is. And the only reason it matters is it can help dictate the type of injury actually experienced by some of these tissues. And this is happening organism-wide. So it's not just the GI tract tissues that may be impacted, but some more recent data from our lab, and it's, it's, it's new, it's brand new data, indicates that the kidneys themselves may actually be damaged. So this is genuinely a, a multi-systemic problem um, that, that should be broadly considered. You know, it's, it's an interesting point there, uh, we always think of, uh, like I said, less intake, and we think as nutritionists, maybe we can, you know, over-fortify, you know, density of the diet, nutrient density, and then we somehow make up, you know, for that, that heat stress. But, but uh, you know, as you're saying, there's there's a lot more at, at uh, going on inside that animal with organs and, and uh, issues that we, we really don't think about as producers. You know, it was interesting, I was uh, – I was reading uh, a while back, uh, 
heat stress is actually more uh, impactful uh, economically to our industry than PERS. And that was a, a figure that really hit me because you always think PERS is, you know, is uh, real expensive to our industry. But, but uh, I think we, we underestimate the fact that this, this, what heat stress causes. Uh, you know, you're talking about yeah. some of those organs. What are some of the, uh, you know, some of the things that we see in the, in the summertime? You know, our mortality goes up, our pre-weaning mortality goes up. What are some of those things that, um, how is, stress, is that heat stress impacting? And what your research has shown, you know, it may actually be some, come later. Um, the, 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 there may be a, a lagging effect a little bit on seeing some of those uh, responses. Sure. Jared, before we do that, let's just talk about the economics. I just think that's fascinating. It's something that's certainly beyond my expertise. But there, I think there was a paper 20 years old or something at this point that talks about a $200 million, $300 million annual loss. And if you take into account that inflation, that number becomes a half a billion dollar a year loss. And what we're doing now is we're using estimates um, approaching $900 million every single year. And one of the things that we're actually doing now is taking some production level data and reevaluating the economic impact of heat stress. And we're actually going to tease out the difference between barrows and gilts because we have some reason to suspect that they're not going to be the same. That In fact, gilts may be more negatively impacted than barrows. And so that's something that, that you can look from for my group coming soon, hopefully in the next year or so. Again, a genuine reevaluation of the, the economic impact. And then from there, um, we can also then get to the environmental impact of heat stress. So certainly um, we can argue that, that a change in climate is impacting pigs in a negative way, but then what is then the impact of that with uh, decreased feed efficiency on, on the environment itself? And so it becomes a spiral then that's, that's headed in a negative direction. And so it provides lots of opportunities for us uh, as producers and those that support producers to intervene and, and recognize then genuine economic benefits with the added side effect of improving the environmental footprint of agriculture, which is something I think everybody can get behind. I mean, the buzzword now is sustainability, and it certainly makes our industry more sustainable if we can produce less pig, uh, sorry, produce more pig um, per input be that feed, be that water, be that air, and certainly per less output. So less, less manure and less CO2. So that's something I think we can, we're all striving for. Um, as far as uh, comments about, sorry, Jared, could you ask your question again? I got all lost thinking about the economics. I just, I think that's such an interesting topic. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, I think we, we, we kind of missed the boat a little bit on, on heat stress and maybe we don't, uh, try to mitigate because we really don't understand the, the total uh, impact that has financially uh, to our, uh, we always see that, you know, in the, you know, late fall, you see the, the response to that summer breedings, you know, your farrowing rates uh, and uh, you know, you, we're getting less, usually our summer months that are, those are our most uh, uh, profitable months. And, and so we're trying to get to wait on these pigs and, you know, we used to be in North Carolina uh, space short. And so you pretty much had to dump that barn in a certain so many days. So, you know, if you, if you couldn't get the weight on those pigs, you just missed out on, on, uh, on pounds. And so it, it's, uh, it's a very, uh, I think uh, it's a silent killer a little bit to us. And uh, we think about it, but we really don't, 
uh, understand exactly uh, the implications. And like I said, it, it, it impacts that next, that subsequent farrowing to that, to that south. So uh, very, very economically. How close are we to getting a model maybe uh, for modeling some of that? You guys been working on that? That's a great question. It's a great question. So there's a number of models that people use um, in science. Um, some people will actually use a cyclic heat stress. And so they genuinely try to model, um, you know, hot during the day and a little bit cooler at night. And so they, that's a, a very common and a very successful model. Um, in my lab, typically we use more of a block heat. So we'll turn the heat on and we'll just leave it on. And one of the reasons why is we do that. And while we recognize it doesn't genuinely represent what happens in, in industry, we do that because we really want to stress the system and we want to see what things look like at their most extreme. And what we found early on was that some of the changes that we see with a cyclic heat stress are actually all the changes we see with cyclic heat stress are represented with a block heat, um, except with a block heat, we can actually induce a greater, greater degree of pathology, which provides for us then a genuine understanding of what's the worst case scenario. And then we can actually then start to intervene um, at the, using that worst case scenario in mind. So mechanistically, it becomes useful. And philosophically, uh, the way that I'm approaching heat stress is first, let's understand what's broken, and then we can start to understand how to fix it. And so using um, the block heat design like we use, we can really break it and really then start to identify what's, what types of therapeutics make sense. Should we just be using an antioxidant? Should we be using targeted antioxidants? Should we be supplementing with specific amino acids? Should we be trying to um, prevent protein degradation or proteolysis? Should we try to stimulate protein synthesis? And all, all of those questions become relevant because all of those things will impact on um, growth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's heat. It looks like, you know, we're in a trend where, uh, you know, global warming, we're going to actually have even hotter temperatures. So your work, I mean, it's going to be, uh, you know, spot on to what we need, what information, what we need to learn as we try to mitigate, uh, even, you know, we got animals that are more productive. Uh, today we've got, you know, cows that are, that are, you know, weaning in 14 pigs, we're used to 10 pigs. So there's just a, a huge amount of, uh, metabolism, extra, you know, more milk production in the farrowing room. And so we've just got more and more heat that we've got to figure out how we're going to dissipate. So that sow is just under extreme amount of, uh, heat stress, uh, even and not only the sow, but the animals in the, the finishing barn as well. They're growing faster than ever before. And all of that comes with increased metabolic heat production. And if you think about it, then that there's still a ceiling for health from a heat perspective. And so as you increase metabolic heat production, there's smaller and smaller margin for error. So as we improve the, the geneticists have done a fantastic job identifying traits and selecting selecting lines that actually are more efficient, which is fantastic. But with that comes the added burden of metabolic heat. Yep. You know, I can remember this hadn't been too many uh, years of my career where a, a market pig was about 240 pounds. And uh, <laughs> we wouldn't even be in the window today. Now we're looking at 290, you know, 300. And so it's uh, – you're exactly right. You know, we've got that barn that has a lot more heat and some of them were in old facilities. So we, we've got facilities that are really designed for, for 20, for pigs that were, you know, 20 years earlier. 
but uh, they've changed, you know, and, and uh, genetics have done a good job of, of making those pigs more more uh, efficient but uh, and, and improving growth rate. So it, we're a little bit behind the, I guess we're a little bit behind the curve, so to speak, and trying to figure that out. Yeah, so now it's interesting that you've been able to do some of the work here with pigs and and as far as you've done a lot in humans. Can you kind of talk a little bit about uh, what you find? How how are pigs and humans similar? I know pigs are a pretty good model for, for, for humans. Yeah. Yeah, and pigs are a better model for some people than others, what we yeah. joke. Uh, but, yeah, so we – so same heat stresses that are impacting pigs are also impacting people. And so we're certainly interested in, in these agricultural questions. To me, that's just a, a fascinating but straightforward problem solution. But we can use pigs as models for people. And those same heat stresses, like I said, that negatively impact pigs are impacting people. The problem, though, is that I can't go up to a person and take muscles out or take their heart out. They, they don't like that. So we can then, what we can do then is start to understand mechanistically what's also happening, what's likely to be happening in people. So we can apply then those same sort of therapeutic strategies to affect human populations and maintain human health. Like one of the things I didn't recognize until I got into this, like heat stroke gets a ton of attention and rightfully so. Heat stroke can be fatal, but the heat stresses that we're talking about are far more common. So if you consider just hospitalized patients, 70% of these hospitalized patients are because of something other than heat stroke, meaning heat stroke is only 30% of the heat emergencies that actually make it to the hospital. So think how many people aren't even hospitalized that experience a heat stroke. Sorry, sorry, experience a heat stress. Um, So those those are the populations that we're after. And we recognize now that just with heat stress, there's wild changes that take place in skeletal muscle. We We can see genuine disruption of what the muscle looks like at the microscopic level. We know the metabolism of muscle is altered. We know that kidneys are damaged. Um, if we go and we look at the heart, we know the heart is, is damaged. And we also know that it's different between the left side of the heart and the right side of the heart, which is something that maybe we should have expected, but, but came as a surprise. Some of the changes that we're seeing on the left side of the heart relate directly to how the heart actually functions. And then we did just a limited pilot experiment. We wanted to know, might there actually be lasting effects? And so we, we had a couple of pigs that we let recover from heat stress and we pulled the hearts out just at, at market. And what we found were pathological injury, like histopathological injury in these hearts, which means when you look at the heart under a microscope, extraordinary damage. In fact, the pathologist that, actually, that did the evaluation wanted to know exactly what we did to these pigs. And when I told her all we did was make them hot for three days, she couldn't believe it. That's that's pretty amazing. I mean, it's uh, and that's one thing uh, as we see, we know that most of the mortality we're dealing, you know, our industry is dealing with a huge mortality issue, uh, whether it's group finish uh, and sales in particular. But, uh, you know, understanding uh, sometimes it's hard to really know what was the insult, you know, that, that happened. You, you actually you may see a healthy animal on the outside and you, you have no idea. We, I mean, we don't, what, 40% of our, our, our sound mortality, we have no idea uh, what was the cause. Right. And so. Uh, right. And isn't it interesting that we're seeing this lasting cardiac damage? And it certainly raises the potential that it may even accumulate over time. It, it's just, it's one of those things in science that, that you see the result and then you take a step back. And one, you question, is this actually real? And once you convince yourself that it is, 
you start thinking about all the potential implications. And certainly cell mortality and cell longevity on that list of things, particularly if this is something that accumulates with time. This was something that would probably cause a more sudden death than not. But man, what if that's true? And then the other, by extension, what if the same thing is happening in people? Remarkable. Just remarkable. How does it impact function? We don't know. Um, Might it lead to sudden death? Um, We don't know. And we also don't know what would happen if we did repeated heatings um, under experimental conditions just to drive, drive home the point. So that's, these are all experiments that we are, we are kicking around. And one of the things that we also joke about here is that there's never a shortage of questions. It's just a shortage of time and dollars to pursue those questions. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It, uh, it, it does, it does uh, maybe give us some, some room to think about, you know, what are, what's going on and, and uh, you know, are there some underlying uh, damages that we've caused uh, with these animals that heat stress that manifest later, either in a mortality or, or morbidity. Uh, so it's very good work. So you see, uh, as you go forward with your work, how, I know you just said, you, you know, we, the more we learn, the, the less we find out that we know <laughs> sometimes. So, so where, where do you think, uh, as, as you're getting into research, how you, where do you think it's going now? Where, where do you seem to be uh, headed? Yeah. So right now we have a couple active projects that we are, eagerly eagerly working through one of them as i mentioned before is a comparison of barrows and gilts and naively i thought a pig was a pig you heat it up you're going to get the same outcome and i'll tell you well we'll use the word serendipitous discovery but the reality is it was just we had data that didn't make sense and then we realized that we actually did this most recent experiment in barrows and all of our previous work had been done in gilts and it just raised the question could there actually be a difference between the way barrows and gilts respond to the same heat stresses. And so we actually did that experiment. We heated the same pigs at the same time in the same room, and they're not the same. Barrows and gilts respond differently to heat stress at the tissue level, at the cell level. Now, are some of the changes the same? Absolutely, but not all of them. And it's those subtle differences between the way barrows and gilts respond to heat stress that opens the door then for sex-specific interventions. Not only that, the potential for sex-specific management strategies. It's just remarkable. So these are things now we've done experimentally um, that we're now trying to replicate at the production level. And so we actually have some producers have been kind enough to share with us their data. Um, So we're in the process now of analyzing, I think it's like 60,000 different animals over the course of a a two two or three-year period, um, complete with environmental conditions and some production metrics. And so we'll really see if this is something that genuinely matters or if it's something that, that was kind of fluky that we're able to do under just extremely uh, well-controlled conditions. Um, we convinced ourselves and I'm, I remain convinced that calcium dysregulation. So this dysregular calcium um, loss of control of where calcium is sitting is something that's driving a lot of the pathology and a lot of the injury. So we did an experiment where we actually manipulated the way calcium is moving. Um, we know that we hit our, hit our target uh, from a phenotype perspective. Um, we made the pigs hotter, which was exactly what we intended to do. So our treated pigs were hotter than our um, just heat stress pigs, which may sound odd, but it indicates to us that we manipulated the physiology that we're trying to manipulate. Now we're in the process of just beginning to understand the biochemical and histological changes that took place 
um, at a tissue level, but then also at an organismal level, as we, as we think about um, metrics that we might pull out of the blood. Um, and yeah, we are diving headlong into changes in non-conventional organs. So when people typically think about animal growth, they think about nutrition, which gets you right to the GI tract. And they think about the most important tissue of all, skeletal muscle. And we know that those things change. But what about these other organs? I, I tend to view a, a, a modern pig as like a race car. And every system's got to be working perfectly for that race car to function optimally. And so if the heart isn't working as well as it should, that's a problem. If the kidneys aren't working as well as they should, that's a problem. And so we're trying now to go back uh, to some of the experiments that we've already done and see if we can do, we call it freezer diving. So we collect tissues out of pigs. We just collect all kinds of stuff and throw it in the freezer and hope it'll be useful one day. And people, my graduate students give me a hard time and tell me that I'm a hoarder, but I keep getting rewarded for being a hoarder. So now we can go back to these tissues and uh, it's actually some of Missy Rose's work um, is fantastic where she's, she's actually showing changes in the hearts from pigs um, subjected to heat stress or not. Remarkable. She's the one that found differences between the right ventricle and the left ventricle. So now in our most current work, not only is she pulling out right ventricle and left ventricle, but she's also pulling out the papillary muscles. So the muscles that actually control the way the flaps inside the hearts work, or the, the valves inside the hearts work. She pulled apex. We're getting those. And she, she also <laughs> demanded kidneys. So now we have a freezer full of kidneys um, just to see what's happening. Because again, there's good evidence that heat stress is damaging not just the GI tract and not just skeletal muscle, but the, the animal in a very, very big, robust way. Certainly, we know reproductive tracts are, are damaged. Reproductive function is damaged. And um, Jason Ross's group and Keating's group has shown changes with the ovaries. Um, changes in sperm motility are well known. Uh, but some of these other organs really could have an impact not only on animal agriculture, but then also we switch quickly back to application to human health and then we can start to talk about comorbidities because there's a whole host of people that, have, that are obese or insulin resistant that are subject to heat stress. How does that, how do those comorbidities then impact heat stress mediated outcomes? What about people with underlying heart disease or underlying kidney disease? I have no idea. It may be nothing. It may be that it does nothing at all, but I bet that's not the case. I bet if you bring a damaged organ to a heat stress environment, that organ is going to do worse. Um, we're, we're interested in mechanism. So in, in pigs, we're, it's a fantastic translational model. And, and as we've discussed, it's great for representing what's happening in people. It's great for representing what's happening in a pig. It tells us exactly what's going to happen in a pig, but it doesn't tell us mechanism. We can describe it and we can say this went up, this went down, these things changed, but it doesn't allow us to actually tie one thing to the next. And we can associate them and we do a really good job with that and trying to tell a story. Um, so what we're trying to do now is actually genuinely manipulate gene expression uh, at the single gene level um, in a mouse model. Uh, Terry, one of the things we figured out the hard way, mice are not pigs. Um, so we found out great ways to induce acclimation in mice uh, that not answering the question that we want to answer. So we're now we're now trying to figure out how can we actually genuinely induce a heat stress in mice. And once again, and I should have known this, male mice and female mice are not the same. And so we're having to conduct our experiments under different heat conditions to induce the same sort of outcome. And it's, it's complicated, but in that complication, I think 
I think we'll find resolution. And by appreciating the complexity of the system and comparing differences between males and females, by comparing differences between rodents and pigs, we'll actually be able to discern what's mechanistically useful and what is not, what might be species specific and what is something that's going to just transcend species. And then we can identify therapeutics that are useful for pigs that actually improve production efficiencies. So we can get back to, you know, the the kind of production efficiency that's necessary to sustain the injury industry industries to sustain the industry, but also then be useful as therapeutics for people that are, again, are subject to the exact same heat stresses as these animals are. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and there's a lot of implication for, uh, I think, for even like our GDUs, you know, our gilts, um, very most expensive animal we have is, are our gilts. Now we, we spend a lot of money and we expect them to, we, we try to get at least three, you know, three parity pay for, uh, pay for set for, but, uh, you know, uh, maybe we need to rethink and maybe we need to, uh, you know, think about some of the environment and maybe improve that environment. Uh, and as you say, all these, these impacts to the organs, you know, it's a holistic, uh, impact. When you, when you impact one organ, you know, there's, there's some, uh, domino effect and something else, you know, occurs. So I think there's a lot of implication there. You know, we, here in, in North Carolina in, in, in the summer, you know, we have cool cells in our barns. We don't typically have that in growth finish. You know, uh, we're, we're just moving air. But uh, with sows, you know, we've got cool cells. It's evaporative cooling. But with the humidity we have, uh, it, it's just almost impossible to really do a good job of, of cooling that temperature. And so we end up, sometimes we even break, we actually add more humidity to that environment. Uh, which makes it worse. And so her actual, what she feels temperature uh, is, is, is much more than the air temperature. So it's, it's, I think there's some implications. I often thought about, you know, a bore stud would, you know, could you pay the air conditioning? You know, you know, when you think about all the, the, the impacts to uh, when you have a heat stressed animal, you know, that, that lag impact can, can go on for weeks and months. And so, you know, right. and I mean, even the potential to be transgenerational, just just remarkable. So that that's one of the implications or one of the outcomes we're hopeful to achieve when we do our economic evaluation. So let's let's just pretend it's a billion dollar year problem right now. At some point, I certainly don't know the economics yet, but at some point it's going to be actually more economically viable to retrofit old barns or with new constructions, genuinely put in cooling systems uh, to protect the pigs. Uh, certainly, I think it's more likely on with the reproductive stock, but I can see the potential in a growth-finish situation, particularly if this gets bad enough. Yeah, particularly, like I said, you know, those pigs that come off in the summer months, you know, those pounds that we're losing or, or those animals that we lose, those are our most uh, profitable pigs. So, uh, you know, there's a big uh, return if we can figure out how to min- mitigate some of that heat stress and some of that, some of the loss that we have to our industry. And it's, I mean, you just, it's just, it's just an amazing, uh, when you look at all the, the potential, you know, opportunity we have, uh, I appreciate you doing, you know, the work that you're doing because I think it's, it's pretty, uh, pertinent to, to our, uh, our situation today and we're trying as you said sustainability 
You know, we've all got, uh, we're all crunched, you know, with, with commodity prices with, uh, today. And, and, uh, you know, I saw somewhere, I don't remember, uh, a sow, you lose a sow, it's like a thousand dollars, you know, mortality to a sow. Uh, and then, you, you know, you get a grow finish pig, you know, all the way up to market. You've got all those input costs. You got the feed, you know, uh, the labor, you got all that in that pig. And then he, you know, you lose, you see, you lose them there in the last week. It's, it's just he meant a tremendous amount of uh, loss to our industry. So I think there's uh, a lot of now uh, you look like a kind of a crystal ball guy. What, what do you think are going to be some of the you mentioned a little bit? What are some of the mitigating strategies that we maybe start may see down the pipeline uh, to mitigate stress in pigs? Oh, man. The, the scientist in me wants to give a very conservative answer, but the irresponsible person in me wants to just pop off. And so here we'll go. Um, I could see value uh, in having and re- reemphasizing spe- sex-specific barns or sex-specific rooms within barns to allow them sex-specific interventions. And it, right now, our data are indicating that barrows are more resistant to heat stress than gilts. And if that's true, then there may be an economic incentive to actually invest in separating barrows and gilts um, during grow finish. And that way, then you might only have to cool half a barn and just to to support the gilts uh, to some degree. Um, By the same token, I could see then there being interventions that, that that are given. Some might be sex specific. Some might be you just give to an entire herd. Um, we tried an antioxidant that did not work. Um, other people have had successes there. And so it, I, I don't think the issue is quite yet resolved. Um, I think that one's going to be come down to economics. So can you come up with an economically viable but effective antioxidant? Um, I don't know. That's a, I think that's a question that, that remains to be seen. Um, I think figuring out the impact of of cell loss and cell longevity because of some of the some of these organ systems matters a lot. Um, so, are there ways that we can protect the cardiovascular system? Are there ways that we can protect kidneys during heat stress? And might that positively impact cell longevity? I think that's a, a reasonable question to ask. Um, one of the a newer technology I saw is just changes in in diet. So, are there dietary interventions that that we could give to either decrease the loss and make it less worse or even prevent losses. So, so that seems like it's a, a possibility. What I'll tell you though, is our most recent data indicate that total protein in, in circulation um, stays the same, but it looks as though amino acids are plummeting. So these free amino acids come, come way down. Um, we don't quite have the implications of that worked out just yet, um, but certainly it seems as though um, release of, of amino acids from skeletal muscle isn't taking place at the level at which we think it should. When we look at skeletal muscle, um, we don't see proteolysis. Um, that's also counter to what should be happening according to the textbooks, right? So if you have uh, a, a decrease in circulating amino acids, that should be released from skeletal muscle, and they should help buffer that loss. Skeletal muscle appears to be hogging all the amino acids, at least not sharing it. Why is that? And that matters because now should we be targeting synthesis, finding ways to boost synthesis, which looks like it's decreased or at least not, not maintained at the same level as control. Um, whereas degradation 
doesn't appear to be activated, at least through seven days of heat stress. So the way that we're thinking about changes that occur during heat stress is something that I think should be revisited. And as we revisit, it reveals then new information. This is why the, the whole philosophy of understanding what's broken so we can figure out how to fix it is so important. Because if we're targeting degradation, we're trying to inhibit degradation, but degradation is an increase during heat stress, you're solving the wrong problem. If synthesis is decreased and we can find ways to, to maintain synthesis in the face of a heat stress, that's valuable. So what are things then that we could do to actually stimulate protein synthesis? Now, the downside of that, though, is that it may actually come at an increased metabolic cost. So, if you, so what is then the sum total balance of the, the cost for the animal. So if increased heat production is a result of increased synthesis or maintenance of synthesis, maybe it's not worth it for the animal. If it doesn't really matter that much, then sure, that's something that would probably be worthwhile. Um, so there, there's all kinds of, like I said, there, there's never a shortage of questions. It's just a shortage of time and money to pursue those questions. Exactly. You know, and it's a good point too, that once you, uh, as you start to model some of the economics, I think we'll have the tools that we've always got to, you know, we've got the bean counters that we got to answer to, and and uh, they want to know what's the return on this. And, and, and when we got some really good figures and, and some hard numbers, uh, we can, you know, make cases for, for some of the paying for some of these interventions. Uh, and, yeah, and bean counters a, love beans. That's right. As a nutritionist, you know, you know, heat increment is, 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 is we, we know protein, uh, just the meta- metabolism of protein is, is a very, uh, has a high heat increment. So as we try to get more, uh, precision and feeding, you know, maybe we can help out, you know, in that, in that, uh, on our part. So there's a lot of, a lot of little areas in out there. I think the economics that we figured that out, uh, we'll start spending some money, you know, to try to improve this. But like you said, you know, sometimes we're chasing, uh, we got to chase the, the right answer, the identify the right problem. Yep. So we're, so we're not going down. Yep. I, yeah, I don't think this is going to be something solved uh, by one person sitting in a lab in Ames, Iowa. This is genuinely an integrated physiology type question. And there's room on, on, for the solutions to come from, come from, from physiology, come from nutrition, come from genetics. There's lots of opportunity here for all of us to be working together to come up with good, good, viable solutions. And, and by viable, I mean economically viable, but also sustainable. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, it's, uh, I think you've got a lot of good things going and I uh, look forward to, to seeing what comes out of your lab here in the future. I think we're going to see some, uh, you're going to open some, some doors and some eyes and uh, we'll get to, get some answers and uh, maybe we won't find all the answers, but uh, we'll know more than we did. So that's always important. No, Jerry, my, my, my worries, we're just going to come up with more questions. Exactly. Yeah. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Feed flow. Feed is too expensive to ignore. Take control with FeedFlow. Adesale provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. AccuFast, the best way to predict the future is to create it. Start creating your future today at AccuFastSwine.com. 
we're nearing the end of our uh, podcast here. We got three questions. And uh, first question, what was uh, what's what's maybe a, a, a favorite resource of yours? Uh, look, it doesn't even have to be about pigs. Uh, yeah, dude, you sent me these questions. Let me tell you what. This was the part I was most nervous about was coming up with like real answers to these. These are these are really hard questions. So the first one, my favorite resource, I thought about like some high-minded answer. The reality though, Jerry, Google. I spent a lot of time looking for quick things on Google and PubMed. And it is it is amazing how much we like the big royal we as humanity know. And then within the sciences, it's amazing how much work has been done and how many clues that you might find in the literature for your own work. It might be that a paper published in 1994, table three, line six, has the piece of data that you need that's the most relevant thing right now. And some of the stuff that was done 40, 50 years ago, just on the applied side, is still so relevant now just from a physiology perspective. Yes, recognize that the animal has changed considerably, but the fundamentals of the animal are still the same, right? They still got to eat. They still got to grow. Those kinds of things are still intact. So, yes, I, I wish I had some more high fluent answer for you, but honestly, Google and PubMed are my go-tos, and I'm on both of them daily. Yeah. You know, that's that's an interesting answer, and it's true. You know, we, we can uh, – we can cut the, the, the time uh, we try. We can pull up any, you know, anything published about any topic and, and uh, we can be, you know, inundated with, with information. But it's uh, it's really sped up. It really speeds up, you know, your, your search and uh, reduces the time that you, you try to find the answers. So, yeah, I, I see that's a that, that's a spot on right there. I think that answer. Uh, secondly, what would be. Uh, Maybe a person that uh, or persons that is big, biggest influencer in your career to, where, to get you where you are today. This was another one. Because, like, do you picture your career now, the last 10 years, the whole kit and caboodle? So I, I tried to take a step back and I was like, I'll come up with one person. And that didn't work out. So this is what I got for you. And it's a total cop out answer. But I'm going to start with Steve Dodd and Lee Sweeney. So that was my PhD advisor and my postdoc advisor. And the reason is because in both of their labs, it was necessary to be creative, like to survive and function and thrive there. You had to be creative, come up with questions. And so that was, I pride that and prize that. I prize that amongst my graduate students and push that amongst my graduate students because it's what sets you up for every later success to come. So yes, I have the freedom to pursue things. And I'm so thankful for that. And then I've got to tip my cap to Manor Hoberg who took a chance on a muscle physiologist that came from extra an exercise physiology background, postdoc at a medical school. And he had the, I'll say great wisdom to hire me uh, into an animal science department. And I'll, I'll forever be appreciative. Uh, I do need to give a tip my cap to my wife who I moved from Florida to Iowa. So that was a big jump. <laughs> and then lastly, and this is one that I really struggled with. I've been here 15 years now and I think about where my career is now and, and the research tracks that I'm pursuing. The reality is that I would not be doing heat stress work if it weren't for uh, Lance Baumgarten at Gabler. So they started about the same time I did 
and we're doing some heat stress work. And I, I got curious about it and they were kind enough to answer my questions and get me excited about the, the multi-systemic dysfunctions that take place during heat stress. And I found, did some reading and figured out in skeletal muscle, there was just a whole lot that was unknown. And so they invited me out and my group out to collect some tissues 12 years ago now, and we're still, still going strong answering questions there. So they've been also hugely impactful. Yeah, it is tough. Sometimes we, we think it takes a village, uh, you know, to raise Indians. And so uh, we, we're, we're the sum of all the experiences of, that we've had with different people. And a lot of different people have different you know, influences. And uh, we pull things from different people. So uh, that's, that's, that's so true. Uh, and, you know, I think about Wayne Cass has said, uh, you're, only as, uh, you're only as smart as your network. You know, and, and when you call up somebody and, and you know, you got to an answer and, it, you know, it might take you days to figure, to find it. Uh, you can call them up and they can give you an answer and you can, you can move on to something else. So I think that's it's uh, it's important to have a good network. And it sounds like you've had a, you know, a wonderful group of influences there through your career. So, well, last question. Uh, what is the. Uh, what do you think is a characteristic or trait uh, of successful people? Let's just say in your industry as a researcher, what do you think are some of the, the important traits to have to be successful in research? Yeah. So I thought about this one also. I, I thought about it more in the, the, the context of production, but I can answer it both ways. So my list is this. I think you got to be curious. I think you got to be smart. You got to have a strong work ethic. And those three things together will just unlock the world. But, and this is an important one, thinking about it within the context of of industry, those people also have to be supported by management and higher ups inside of a culture that, that values innovation and inside of environments where it's okay to be wrong, where it's okay to do something that doesn't work. And it comes just down to this idea that, if you're trying something new, if you're trying something daring, you are likely to fail. And that needs to be okay. Learn from your failures, fail fast, fail often. And through that will come successes. But those people that are willing to take those chances, I think need to be nurtured. Yeah. You know, I think it's it's so true that uh, if we're going to learn, we've got to have a, a culture with a free, you know, a free uh, liberty to make a mistake and to be wrong. And uh, it's just as important to learn, you know, the mistakes we have. We've learned just as much if we find out we, you know, this didn't work. Or we yes. That's that's something we can, you know, we can kind of sharpen our focus and now move past and, and not go down rabbit holes. So I think that's, that's a good Yes. Point. Try something. If it doesn't work, write it down. Don't try it again and move on to the next idea. But the point is to continue to innovate, continue to ask the question, if I do this, will it improve my outcomes? Yeah. You know, I think about a farm. I learned so much. I go on our farms and uh, if you want to find out, you know, how to do something better, go to that guy that's in that barn every day and he will tell you, he will, he will give you, you'll learn more from him then he learns from you, I can guarantee. So I've, I've learned more from being on a farm and just interacting with those people. They're, they're, uh, they're good at what they do, and they, 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 they can teach you uh, things that you didn't even think about. 
So true. Oh, such a good one. Be humble. Be willing to learn from anyone. That's a great one. That's right. That's right. Well, um, you know, I really enjoyed this today, and I really think you've got some good uh, – you're doing a great job research uh, what you're doing there, and, and I think it's, it's an area that, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we have a lot of questions and, and very few answers. So I look forward to, to some of these answers as you, as you move forward, and I think our industry – our industry in general is, is going to learn and we're going to be able to uh, maybe apply some of these things into our actual production systems. So, very good. I hope so. That's the goal. Doing work for work's sake is just not fun. That's right. application of that work is important. Yeah, it gets me excited when, when you can take something and, uh, and you can actually apply it. You know, in an applied setting, uh, that's when it's really, that's when to me it's really meaningful and it really uh, gives you a good feeling knowing that you you know, made it made a difference. Made impact. So, that's impact. That's the goal, I think, for all of us. We want to make an impact. All right, very good. All right, Jerry. Hey, thanks for your time and thanks for the invitation to join you. This was great. Yeah, I enjoyed it and uh, look forward to having you back on here. <laughs>